Let's hear from God's word for us today. Hebrews uh, chapter 6, 19 to 7, verse 10. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning or at days of days or end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites. Even though they are all, also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had these promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Hebrews here refers back to what would have been a well-known story in Genesis. So, let's picture the scene. There is this great battle between multiple kingdoms. And during this battle... Lot, Abraham's nephew, is captured and is being taken to Sodom. And immediately, Abraham goes out with 318 of his trained men to find him. And he finds him before he gets to Sodom at Hobar. I don't know where that is, but that's where he finds him. He brings back Lot's goods, his people, and Lot himself. And so after these events, two kings go out to meet Abraham. One, the king of Sodom. But Abraham rejects their gifts so that uh, the king of Sodom may not have control over him and his people. But he also meets another king, a mysterious character, the king of Salem, a.k.a. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, but also a priest of the Most High God. And Abraham receives a blessing from him, an affirmation of God's promise. And then Abraham gives, him, gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he has earned in the battle. He then departs, and we never see Melchizedek again. So why is the author of Hebrews so interested in Melchizedek? In the Old Testament, Melchizedek only appears twice. Once in Genesis, in the story I've just told, Genesis 14, that is. And only in that, that chapter, he appears in three verses, 
In these three verses, he arrives, he blesses Abraham, he receives an offering from Abraham, and then he leaves. And he's never mentioned again apart from one single verse in the Psalms, from Psalm 110, verse 4. This psalm is really important for the writer of Hebrews. He refers to this psalm again and again. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the coming king, which uh, the author of Hebrews identifies as Jesus. This psalm is where is is a dramatic a drama of where God denotes his chosen and anointed king. And he denotes him in verse 4 as a priest forever by the order of Melchizedek. So, Melchizedek is a bit of a mysterious character. But Hebrews sees this mysterious character as a symbol who foreshadows Jesus and who Jesus is. So in what way does the author of Hebrews uh, draw out that Melchizedek foreshadows Christ? So firstly, Melchizedek is both priest and king, which gives us a picture of Jesus as a priestly king. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, This king Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. So, Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Jesus, the Messiah, is also a priest and a king, even greater than any priest or king has gone before. Could we have uh, the first slide up, please? So here we have priests of the Old Testament offering a burnt offering, which they do all the time. And here we have Jesus making one sacrifice that was sufficient for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is the greatest priest. Not only that, but once he had made this sacrifice of himself... He was raised from the dead, and then after revealing himself to his followers, ascended into heaven. Now, this ascension into heaven is not just sort of floating up to the sky to be with God. This is an ascension to the heavenly throne, where he will sit at the right hand of God the Father. Can we have our next slide, please? Here on the left, we can see Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. She ascends to the throne, as you can see in the middle. It's a little bit small. Um, so she, she, once she's confirmed to be the monarch, she ascends the throne. And so Jesus, having made the offering of himself, ascended through to the throne of glory, you can see on the right. However glorious Queen Elizabeth II's throne, Jesus' throne is far greater, for he ascended to the throne of heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Can we have the next slide as well? So, as Melchizedek was both priest of God Most High and King of Salem, Jesus is the greatest high priest. He performed the only fully sufficient sacrifice on the cross, 
And now is the greatest King of Kings, the Messiah, the King of Heaven, who sits at the right hand of God. I want you to let these images of who Jesus is impact you. He is both priest, made the king, the sufficient sacrifice, and king ascended to the throne of grace. Now, a second way in which Melchizedek is used to foreshadow Jesus is a bit odd, but here it is. Melchizedek has no genealogy, which gives us this picture of Jesus as an eternal son who has no beginning or end. Again, this is a slightly odd argument, but um, for the author it makes sense. So in chapter 7, verse 3, it says this, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek has no genealogy in Genesis. His father and mother are not named. His years are not numbered like other characters in Genesis. We're not told when he was born or when he dies, like the other characters. Now, I don't think the writer is suggesting that Melchizedek is some sort of eternal being, although there's a bit of debate about what Hebrews means by this. Um, but, he is, but I think the, the writer of Hebrews is using this lack of genealogy as a symbol for Jesus, the Son of God who himself is eternal. The Son we hear in Revelation, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus himself says to his followers, before Abraham was, I am. He denotes himself as eternal. Now, the third comparison, in the, way, um, the third way that Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus, is Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Abraham and the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Israel. So like, like him, Jesus is above the priesthood. He transcends the priesthood. Not, he is not a Levite. He's not a priest himself, but he is above them, as well as he's greater than Abraham. So two ways in which Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Abraham. Firstly, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. It is argued that because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek is the one who's superior. In that situation, he's sort of on the side of God in a, in a way, and, and Abraham's a recipient of God's blessing. And secondly, Melchizedek receives Abraham's offering, a tithe, a tenth of his wealth. Now, another argument is made. Since Abraham has not fathered Isaac, Isaac has not yet fathered Jacob, and Jacob has not yet fathered Levi, who would become, uh, his descendants would be the line of priests in the Old Testament. Um, since Levi was yet to be born, he was merely a twinkle in his great-grandfather's eye when Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. Through Abraham, all of his descendants were blessed with the blessing of God through Melchizedek. And all of his descendants, by proxy, offered Melchizedek the offering Abraham made to him. Verse 6 of chapter 7, But this man who did not belong to their ancestry collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promises. This denotes Melchizedek's superiority to Abraham 
and all of his descendants. Well, so it is argued with Jesus. As the great high priest and as the great king, he is greater than the Levitical priests and even Abraham himself because he is God's anointed. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, Jesus is both priest, great high priest, and king of kings. He is the eternal son, and he has an eternal rule, an eternal priesthood. And that means he is greater than Abraham and greater than all of his descendants. So, here we have Jesus. What does it mean for us to be ruled by this great high priest and king of kings. Jesus is the priest, the great high priest, and he is the king of kings. I think that's really important to notice. In him, he is both priest and king. Throughout the history of Israel, the history of, and also the history of culture, you often get these two great but different powers. You have the priests and you have the king. You have the religious authority, the priesthood, and the political authority, the monarchy. And you can see this represented in maps of Jerusalem. Can we have that on the side, please? Ignore all the words and just look at the big arrows. Um, so, at the bottom here, you've got the lower city, this is where the residents of the city live, the market, the entertainment. And then there are two mounts. One on the left is in the upper city. Uh, at the top is the king's fortress and his palace. I don't know if you can read it, but that's what the left arrow is pointing to there. And then on the right, there is what's called the temple mount, where the priests minister. And these are the, the, both the highest points in Jerusalem and therefore the greatest powers. And we read often in the Old Testament that when these two powers have a difficult or strained relationship, things start to go very wrong. This is certainly the case in um, a part of 2 Corinthians, chapter 26. We have King Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king like his father. He won battles, he built up Jerusalem, he was honored by his neighbors, the Ammonites, his army was very strong, and Israel was very wealthy in his time. God blesses him, and Uzziah is faithful to God. But then things start to change when his relationship with God is strained by his own pride. Uzziah, through pride and disobedience to God, tries to make himself the high priest as well as the king of Israel. Now, this was a complete no-go. He goes into the temple... Uh, to the altar of the Lord to make an offering on the altar of incense. So here the king of Israel, Uzziah, becomes prideful and tries to both be the greatest political and religious authority in the land. And the priests rebuke him, saying, It is not for you, Uzziah, to make offering to the Lord, but for the priest, the descendants of Aaron, the descendants of Levi, who were consecrated to make offering. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And for this, Uzziah is struck with leprosy and is banished from the temple. 
It is said that he was then completely barred from the temple because he had to live separately so to not spread the disease. Uzziah, through pride, tries to be both the, the greatest political authority as king, but also the religious authority, taking the place of the priests. He does this in disobedience and falsehood towards God. But Jesus, as we have learned, is appointed both priest and king by God the Most High, because he is worthy, and this is the difference between Isaiah and Jesus. Jesus is worthy of being both king of kings and great high priest. What makes Jesus worthy of being both great high priest and king of kings? Well, let's go back to the beginning of Hebrews to find out. In Hebrews 1, chapter 3, it says this. The sun is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, we see see this in the crucifixion, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We saw that at the ascension. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited in more excellent, is more excellent than theirs. The son's kingship is bestowed by his father. He is the exact imprint of God, being a full reflection of his glory. As such, he is the only one worthy of making the full purification for sins, being a great high priest, and also the only one worthy to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being king of kings. He is exalted because he humbled himself. His life was defined by humility, unlike Uzziah, who was false towards God and prideful. Jesus is, and he says this about himself, lowly and humble in heart, which makes him the best kind of king and the best kind of priest. Indeed, the greatest priest, because he emptied himself to the lowest point, even to death on a cross. And in this, Jesus unifies the, power of priest, the powers of priesthood and monarchy in himself because of the ultimate sacrifice he made on the cross for our sins. And because he has been raised up and rules over God's kingdom, having ascended to the throne of glory. Now, in our modern world, there are these institutions of priesthood and monarchy still exist. We may sort of call these the, the church and the state nowadays. Um, And I don't think there's any other better image of this than the city of Lincoln. Can we have the slide up? Um, As a a boy from the southwest, I don't get to go to Lincoln very often, but it's it's a real shame because it's a beautiful place and a great sermon illustration, as it turns out. Here you see in the foreground a tower from Lincoln Castle. You can see the one with the um, Union flag. This is where the ruler uh, would have lived and ruled. Um, And then in the background, you can see Lincoln Cathedral. I think, am I right in it? Is it, it, when it was built, was the largest building in Europe? That may be wrong, but someone correct me on that. Um, So yeah, where the priests reside. So it's a visual illustration of these great powers, um, and that they still exist. 
And we know that these two powers have been active, sometimes in conflict, through our own history. Just look at the history of the Church of England. But what would it mean for Jesus to be both the great high priest and king of kings? Now, in the modern world, I think there is this sort of false distinction between uh, two spheres of life. There's the sort of religious sphere over here and the sort of social, political, economic sphere over here. The sacred sphere of life and the secular sphere of life. And we, as the church, can sometimes fall into this false divide as well, not recognizing that Jesus has unified both of these spheres in his priestly kingship. If we compartmentalize our faith to simply sort of religious stuff, uh, such as sort of going to church and praying, all good things, certainly. But if we compartmentalize our faith to only that, we do not allow Christ to transform the rest of our lives. If we compartmentalize Jesus as priest, not recognizing him as king, we have a merely private faith. We aren't transformed into his likeness. Or if we are convinced that we need to do something politically and socially about the evils of the world, that we need social transformation, but we reject spiritual discipline, um, confession of sins, worship and praise of God, prayer, awareness of Jesus' uh, power of forgiveness, we also stray off the path which leads to life. If we compartmentalize Jesus as king, but not priest, we again are left untransformed. But if we recognize Jesus as priest and king, we live out of grace. Grace becomes our way of life. Jesus has made a sacrifice for sin that is wholly sufficient. The sacrifice of himself on the cross. All the sacrifices of animals we could ever provide could not cover us. But we have a great high priest who has given himself as a sacrifice to bring us into relationship with God. And now we live under his rule, which starts, begins, uh, continues, and ends by grace and grace alone. We are not ruled by a king who is detached. He is drawn near to us uh, as a priest. It is in this recognition of this gift that we can live an integrated life under his reign, where the seemingly separate spheres of sacred and secular of life are united in him. Why is it important to recognize that Jesus is both priest and king? Because if we don't, we're not really living a whole and unified life. We, are, we fragment our lives into different spheres. We fragment our lives into different parts. We don't live with one unified Lord, one unified priestly king of our whole lives. We need to remember that we are Christ's body as the church. And as, as such, we are called a royal priesthood. Now, I think that's really interesting. It's um, combining those two metaphors of king and priest together. We're a royal priesthood. Um, we, are royal, we are priests and kings of the order of Jesus because we are bound to him. So we must be heralds of his rule. We must proclaim how he has become our priestly king. Um, as it says in 2 Peter, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. In order that we may proclaim the mighty acts of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let us proclaim that. 
Let Jesus be both priest and king in your lives. Jesus is the one who has set you free from your sins by offering a sacrifice of himself upon the cross. Jesus is also the one who has ascended to the throne of glory. He is the king and judge of the world. And we long to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Let us proclaim Jesus as priest and king in all that we do.